Let's turn to Zechariah chapter two through four. Yes, you heard me. We're gonna do three chapters tonight. And you're thinking, Dwight, you couldn't get through one verse on Sunday morning. That took you over an hour. You expect us to believe that? Well, we shall see. We shall see. A little bit of background of Zechariah. The vision of this chapter prophesies the rebuilding of the temple and the city of Jerusalem by the remnant of Israel in the days of Zechariah. However, this is in no way uh, concludes the prophecy. Zechariah, and this is true of all the other prophets, look forward to the very end times and see the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple during the millennium. And I think I wanna start the Bible study this way and, and end it this way. Um, I know I say this often, but if people don't know the Lord with all that's going on, and a lot of them are confined to quarters and are just sitting there hour after hour, um, and if you don't know the Lord, you can get um, more, than, more than depressed and uh, discouraged. And the difference between um, right now, uh, those who know the Lord and know those who don't, even a lot of, a lot of believers, um, if they're not plugged into scripture and understand the end game that what God has in plan for all this, this has to happen first before um, he can take us out before the great tribulation can begin. So I see the days getting darker and, um, and yet with that, uh, we should uh, have this word of encouragement. Zechariah is gonna be speaking to this group of people to encourage them. They've been there for 12 years and the temple is uh, not done. The years are 520 to 518 BC uh, instead of rebuking them and telling them to get their act together and get to work, he uses the words of encouragement to get them back with their sight on the, the goal of getting the temple built again. Because if the temple isn't built, they're, they're um, saying that the presence of the Lord is, wants to manifest itself there in, in Jerusalem and the temple has to be rebuilt. Um, chapter two, there's a reason I took two, three, and four together because they, they fit together and especially as it pertains to Revelation chapter 11. So let's dive in and we're gonna read the first five verses which says, then I raised my eyes and looked and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. And so I said, um, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out and another angel was coming out to meet him who said to him, run speak to this young man saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be in the glory in her midst. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And we're going to get into uh, chapter 4. We're talking about Zerubbabel is going to lay the foundation, and he's going to be around to see it actually finished. You have to kind of be able to try to put yourself in their sandals, if you would, um, Jerusalem is a pile of dust and rubble and they are discouraged and they're building um, their own homes but the, the temple's not getting completed so after he tells them to measure it uh, we have this conversation going on between a Lord and an angel telling him look ahead because the time is gonna come, it's, it's dark now, but it's gonna be, in the future, it's gonna be glorious in her midst, verse five, 
and um, the walls, and there will be towns all around it. There will be men. There will be livestock. So taking their eyes off the present difficulty that they're in, we find these words of exhortation and encouragement. Then we read in verses 6 and 7, um, less than 50,000 people came back uh, from the Babylonian captivity. And a lot of them had just stayed behind and sort of gravitated into the culture of the Babylonians. Now, taken, it would have been the Medes and the Persians. So in verse 6 and 7, it says, Rise up, flee from the land of the north. Now, this is a, a reference to Babylon. Says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughters of Babylon. Okay, again, um, Daniel wrote from Babylon, Ezekiel, and now Zerubbabel is writing from Jerusalem and speaking to the people in Jerusalem. It wasn't the same with, with Daniel. We'll be going to Daniel in just a little bit. But he's calling them to come home. Get out. Come back. Verses um, 8. The reason why is for thus says the Lord of hosts. He sent me after glory to the nations which plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. He brought judgment on Babylon. And um, we'll be going back to see the night that Babylon fell in one night. And how quickly the power structure changed in one evening. But I mean, we still use this expression today. We use the expression, well, the writing's on the wall. And some of us are saying that about our country right now. What's going to happen? The writing's on the wall. And we have another expression uh, when we talk about um, uh, someone you're in love with. We use the expression, she's the apple of my eye. We use that to this day. A lot of these terms that we use, here's one um, that the Lord is expressing. Uh, Those who he loves, he disciplines. Um, He had to correct um, his children, the ones he loved. And so he put them in captivity for 70 years. But he says, now come back. Come back from Babylon. Why? Because you're the apple of my eye. I love you. And I want to rebuild you. And last week we talked about don't make the mistakes that your father made. Listen up this time. Your father's listened for Jeremiah's whole life, but they didn't respond to his message. As a result, God dealt with them and took them into captivity. Verse 9 For surely I will shake my hand against them and they shall become spoil for their servants and then they will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughters of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell with you in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and they shall become my people and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. What does he do? Zechariah is there talking to these people, and they're standing in this dust pile. And it's a mess, and they are discouraged. So to get there, the last song we sang was perfect. Um, Getting our eyes off the things here and the promises that that the Lord has. That's exactly what he's doing here. He says there's coming a day when this is all gonna be changed. And I myself, in verse 11, I'm going to dwell in your midst and... um, um, the whole world will be silent before the Lord. Now, we've read the whole chapter, but I want to go back to verses 1 and 2 and begin to connect some dots. And what I find interesting here 
is chapter two, verse one and two, are going to correspond with Revelation 11, verse one and two. So let's read verse one and two again, where it says, then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand said, where are you going? And he said to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. Let's go to Revelation chapter 11. And we are in the very middle of the seven-year tribulation period. And we're introduced, um, I want to read verse 1 and 2 and then do a little sidetracked here. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Arise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. And then it says something interesting. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. Now let's just settle in for a little bit. We're talking the temple. And we're talking um, now, don't measure the outer part because that's been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. That's another way of saying three and a half years. I'm gonna put up on a screen, I commented on this last week. Um, I'm gonna put a picture of the Temple Mount and the Eastern Gate. And there it is right here. Of course, uh, this is the Dome of the Rock. And if you'll notice, the gate that is sealed up to the right of it um, is a little bit farther. Well, it's exactly 330 feet. I'll tell you exactly what it is. Um, From the Dome of the Rock. Was it Sunday or was it last week when I was telling you that the, um, I think it was last Wednesday, that when you go up on the Temple Mount, um, they have about four by six, four by four slabs this big, about this thick, and they're, they're no particular pattern, but they make up the whole temple, courtyard, what we call the, um, um, where, the, where the temple is going to be built. And it's true except in one place. And that place... Well, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Asher Kaufman, first of all. Dr. Asher Kaufman um, is dead now, but he was a professor at uh, the Hebrew University in the 80s. And in his research, he states that if you would stand, and that's why I wanted a view that you could actually look down into, but if you're, this picture is taken from the Mount of Olives. And if you would go, according to Dr. Hoffman, and it's and look through what, it, what before it was sealed up. Um, you would have the temple directly in front of you, according to all of his research. So his name, if you want to look him up, is Dr. Asher Kaufman. And um, um, there's only one place on the Temple Mount where the stones. Uh, aren't randomly placed, but they're in a straight line. And they lead to, now I'm gonna show you a place that's called the Dome of the Spirits or the, the Dome of the Tablets, and that's here. Now it's called a copula. Um, um, the Muslims actually gave it the name of the Dome of the Spirit and, or the Dome of the Tablets. But what's unique about this is it's, and the reason that the copula is there is because right underneath it, there's bedrock. There's two places on the Temple Mount where there's bedrock. One is in the Dome of the Rock, that's why they call it the Dome of the Rock, the one with the, the golden top on it. But this one here is also bedrock. Now, it's interesting that we have... Um, when the Antichrist comes into power, we talked about on Sunday, obviously part of the agreement is going to be the rebuilding of the temple. Because we read, remember in Second Thessalonians 2, that um, 
He goes into the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And uh, he doesn't do that, though, until he's three and a half years into it. Well, people have always said or speculated, that means, therefore, that the Dome of the Rock has to somehow be destroyed. And that was a, a train of thought for many, for many years. But actually, I'm stealing this from the first time I was on the Temple Mount, and Pastor Chuck took us to this place and gave us this Bible study, um, quoting Dr. Asher Hoffman. And basically, when you have the line of stones that go right from, if you uh, remember where the, um, the eastern gate is, if you go straight down, you don't run into the Dome of the Rock, but it does go straight into the capital right there. That's where it ends up. Now, let's go back to measuring it. Measure the temple. But now in verse two, but leave out the court. Now, you had an inner court. You had a court for men. You had a court for women. You had a court for Gentiles. And um, that, that would have been there. Don't measure that part because it's been given to the Gentiles. So here's um, a hypothesis, a possibility, and something that could happen. A Jerusalem is going to become a cup of trembling. One of the things that was in last week's news bites, or maybe it's in tonight's, I don't know, the blowing of the shofar, this, this Rosh Hashanah, was that last week? It's this week. This is really important to read because the shofar has not been blown on Rosh Hashanah since it was destroyed in 70 AD. That's how long it's been. And now they're talking about doing that this year. And um, if the Antichrist is going to have to make peace, he's going to probably make a statement like, Jerusalem has to be an international city um, for Muslims, Christians, and Jews, because they all say it's holy to them. And if this is the holiest place on planet Earth, then we have to partition it, if you will. So what I'm saying is, if it's 330 feet from the Dome of the Rock to there, that's where we believe the Holy of Holies actually was at one time, according to Dr. Asher Kaufman and the gate that is sealed up. When you go down, um, the gates of the original, these were built in, um, I think, the 1400s by the Turks. Uh, so these, are, of course, are not the original walls. But um, um, when you go on the other side, it's possible, let's just say, to put up a partition that would separate, is everybody tracking with me? That would separate the temple from the outer courts which would be given to the Gentiles. That might not have to be destroyed. Maybe the Antichrist will say, well, we'll let you guys keep the Dome of the Rock, but we're also going to let Israel build their temple. And so I find the, um, this verse here extremely interesting. Measure the temple, but don't measure the outer court. It's been given to the Gentiles. I'll let you guys just ponder that one um, uh, for yourself just a little bit. Um, Today, when we go to Israel, we go to what's called the rabbinical tunnel. It's about 30 feet down, and I'm going to take you there right now and uh, talk a little bit about some women praying. This is about 30 feet down. If you would go up, everybody knows what the Wailing Wall is, correct? Familiar with the Wailing Wall? Right up to the right of the Wailing Wall, you can enter into what's called, and you walk downstairs about 30 feet, and now you're on first century, uh, 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 first century when the Lord would have walked on the streets of Jerusalem. That would be ground level right there. Now, the reason I took this picture here about, oh, well, the first time I met Doc, um, uh, Rabbi Richmond, Heim Richmond, was in 1987. That's when they started what's called the Temple Mount Institute. 
and they're dedicated to the rebuilding of the third temple. Now, I remember having coffee with him. I did the math. I, we were, I was 36 years old at the time. We're both the same age. And um, he's worldwide fam- famous today. Um, but he was just getting started back then. The institute is still there today. And um, imagine, well, well, he told me a story that, about a guy named Rabbi Getz who, if you Google him, he's dead now too, but he was the rabbi oversight of the Temple Mount. He was the number one guy. Well, there was a, there was a time when, where they are right now, when you get halfway down this temple, it goes all the way along um, the side of the Temple Mount, and it would come out in the Arab Quarter. And for years, we would just walk through and walk up into the Arab quarters. But what Israel did is they began an excavation underneath the Temple Mount. They were looking for something. Uh, They were looking for the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Rabbi Getz told Rabbi Richmond that he had seen the Ark of the Covenant. And it caused such a ruckus because they were now excavating underneath the Temple Mount and it caused such a ruckus, people actually got killed because the Arabs said no more digging under the temple. So for years, and I remember to this day saying, okay, um, Rabbi Richmond, you're a rabbi, I'm a pastor. You look me square in the eye and you look in my eyes and you tell me that Rabbi Getz told you that he knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. He says, what? I know where the Ark of the Covenant is. I said, plain enough. So every year we go there, we go to the Temple Mount Institute. For years I would bring up the question. They didn't want that information out. It's out now, but it wasn't in 87. And it wasn't for many, many years. And you, we would go to the Temple Mount Institute and they would, and for years, Rabbi Richmond was the one who actually led, led the tours. And towards the end, I would always raise my hand and ask the question, do you know where the Ark of the Covenant is? Well, we're not sure, you know. They uh, could have hit it when the Babylonians came. Josiah could have hit it. We know there was no Ark of the Covenant in the second temple for 500 years. It wasn't there, so we really don't know where it is. Liar, liar, liar. They knew, and now, for the past five years, they come right out and say it. As you're leaving, the last thing they show you is a mock-up of the Ark of the Covenant. And then they just casually say, and we know where it is. Just that simple. Now, just think, think this through with with me for a second if it's as late as I think it is with everything that's taking place. What if they decided to just bring it out? Do you realize that we're talking about Indiana Jones was right? The greatest archaeological find of all time. But I'm being serious. We're talking about the place that the Ten Commandments are placed in. It is the greatest archaeological find of all time. What if they brought it up to the surface? You don't think Jews from around the world would demand that their temple be rebuilt now that we have the Ark of the Covenant again? That would become a very major political issue. How many Jews living in California (laughs) would think it's time to get out of here? I'm not going to Idaho, I'm going back to Israel. And that's, as I, as I watch everything happening so quickly right now, that could happen. What blows my mind, what I can't figure out, is why isn't it blowing people's minds when they leave the Temple Mount Institute and say, did I hear right? They just said they know where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's not in some warehouse in Washington, D.C., like in the movie, okay? It's not there. They resealed because people did get killed where these women are praying, there's a, there's a good side arch, and they sealed it all back up again. The story is that Solomon, when he built the first one, was thinking ahead, what if 
the ark was ever in danger. And so there's all these uh, channels and chambers that are underneath the Temple Mount. And it's sealed up now, but that's what these gals are doing right here. They're, this is when we, we walked right by the spot that if you would turn right and, and look in that direction, you would be looking where the Holy of Holies was. And um, I thought you'd find that interesting how that ties in with the measuring of the temple in Zechariah and uh, the, the, the rebuilding being a reality that you don't have to have the Dome of the Rock destroyed. It could actually remain and still have the temple up there because this is where the original temple was, not where the Dome of the Rock is. Okay, let's go on. Let's back to, to uh, Zechariah. One chapter cracked out. Chapter two, chapter three, we'll read just the first two verses. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now I'm gonna come back from a brand plucked from the fire, but turn with me to um, Joshua chapter five. I wanna point something out here. And this is when they're getting ready to, Joshua's getting ready to cross over the next day into Jericho, cross the Jordan. And in verse 13, came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn by his hand and Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or are you against us? And he said, no. <laughs> I always laugh when I read that. That's not what I ask you. Are you with us or against us? No. But as commander of the army of the Lord, what we just read back here is the Lord said to Satan, um, the angel of the Lord, I believe here in verses one and two in, in Zechariah, is the Lord himself before his incarnation. And the reason I say that is as we read on here in verse 14, we have the, he's called the commander of the Lord for I have now come and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and he said, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now, every time a man falls down and worships an angel, what does the angel say? Don't do that. I serve the Lord just like you do. That doesn't happen here. What happens is the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. We have here the Lord himself, but his title is the commander of the Lord's army with a sword that's drawn. This is indeed Jesus Christ. Um, And the reason I know that is the command to take off your sandals because he's on holy ground. Back to Zechariah. Somehow it's just strange to me that there's dialogue. There was dialogue when he was tempted. Jesus was tempted by the devil those 40 days. We find here, it says in Jude that uh, uh, Michael the archangel had words over the body of Moses, and we'll be coming back to that a little bit later. But um, in these verses here, I see this also as um, the angel of the Lord being the Lord himself. Verses three through seven. Now Joshua uh, was clothed with filthy garments. Oh, I wanna go back. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Um, The idea here, um, as they're talking about Jerusalem, that's the way the Lord describes it. This is not a brand. Um, Jerusalem, is it not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, I think he's saying, for 70 years it's done nothing but gather gusts and and rubble. 
It's like, it's like a, um, a, a brand plucked from the fire. It was burned by the Babylonians to the ground, ashes and dust. But um, uh, now, as a result of this, we, re- we read in verse, that's the physical state of, of Jerusalem. Now we're going to go and take a look at the spiritual state of um, the people in verses three through seven. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood with him, saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. When we do go through the Temple Mount Institute, it shows you the beauty that the high priest garments actually were. And they had to be spotless. There could be no blemish in it at all, anywhere. And yet here, Joshua the high priest has filthy garments on. But he says, I'm going to remove your iniquity. Now we're associating the sinfulness of man with the the dirt of the garment. And he says, but I'm going to clothe you with rich Clothing. In other words, he's going to take it away. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways, and if you keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts and I will give you places to walk among those who stand by. Let's go back to last week and remind you, go back to chapter one and the Lord is calling them to repentance and we read in verse five, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes which I commanded my servants the prophets did they not for overtake your fathers? In other words, I sent the prophets to you. You didn't listen to them. And now don't make the same mistake. Verse, uh, it goes on to say, so they returned and said, now these are the people that the Lord is speaking to and Joshua is the high priest over the people. Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, he has dealt with us. So they um, admitted it. They said, we've sinned. And uh, we need to be cleansed. Well, that's basically what the Lord is saying in verses three through seven of chapter three. Eight through 10. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are wondrous signs. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. Notice that it's all capital letters. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So we're introduced to something who's called the branch. And it's going to remove iniquity. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree, clearly again projecting into the future, into the millennial reign, where um, everybody will have their own fig tree and uh, it won't be dust and ashes and rubble. And so again, he's pointing them ahead. How is this gonna be accomplished? Well, I'm going to bring forth my branch. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. This is a prophecy of the restoration of Messiah's kingdom. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of its roots. So the father of David was Jesse. And he's saying that uh, um, what's gonna come forth is a stem 
from a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of its roots. What is um, gonna be represented by this branch? Well, it's interesting that it said seven back in Zechariah. And if you read these, it's going to be a prophecy about Jesus, but it says um, concerning the branch or the Lord himself, we have seven things stated about him. Number one, you can count them like this if you want to. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, number one. The spirit of wisdom, number two, and understanding, number three. The spirit of counsel, number four, and might, number five. The spirit of knowledge, number six, and the fear of the Lord, number seven. Interesting number, the number of completion. Clearly a prophecy uh, that is going to um, the, the terminology was Zechariah saying that he's going to send forth the branch. Well, that's where the branch came from, from the house of David, from the root of Jesse. And, um, and then if we would read farther down, um, the characteristics of the millennial reign. Zechariah tells us, well, everybody's going to be sitting, inviting their neighbors over for supper, sitting under a fig tree, enjoying the evening, and um, if you go down to verse six, uh, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. So there'll be an, the animal kingdom is there, but not in animosity towards each other. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. No more carnivorous animals. They're all grass eaters. The young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root, there it is again, of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Back to Zechariah. 8 through 10 brings us to chapter 4. Chapter 4, we'll read, actually I'm going to read through verse, we're going to read the chapter and then I'm going to come back and we will, um, the, the chapter really has one train of thought except for verses eight and nine. But let's just read it and then we'll come back and, and um, go back to Revelation. Chapter four. Now the angel who talked with me came back and awakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, well, I'm looking and, and there's a, a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. And then two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl, the other at the left. So I answered and I spoke to the angel who talked with me saying, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, don't you know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. So he answered me and said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hand of Zerubbabel has laid the foundation to this temple. His hands will also finish it. Now remember, He's trying to encourage these people. They're discouraged. They left off in building the temple. They've been there for 12 years. This verse is telling us here, look, Zerubbabel, you started this job, and they're gonna be around to see it finished. In other words, this isn't gonna be this way forever. Uh, this is going to be done. It's going to be completed. His hands will also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. 
a plumb line for any carpenters here, of course, is how you know if your wall is straight. If you're laying a brick wall, you put a plumb line next to it and see if it's the plumb, you put a weight on the bottom of it and you see if everything's going up correctly. These are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Then I answered and said to him, well, what are these two olive trees one at the right of the lampstand and the other at the left. And I further answered and said to him, what are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two golden pipes from which the golden oil drains? So now we know that we have oil coming from these olive trees. And he answered me and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Hmm. Two olive trees, and let me just paint the picture here of the daily routine in the temple. Um, There would be a rotation if you were a Levite. You would spend a couple of weeks um, making showbread, prayers of incense, um, um, responsible for keeping oil in the lamp so that the lamps would not go out. And this was done on a daily basis. And then John the Baptist's father, this is where he had the vision and was told about his, his son. And he went, he had the vision, and then remember he couldn't speak for a while. And so he, he was a part of, of this tradition that went on. All right, now let's go back to Revelation chapter 11 again. And again, this is interesting to me because it ties in the book of Zechariah. And just like we said with Daniel, you really can't understand the book of Revelation unless, unless you understand the book of Daniel. It's true with Zechariah. You can say the same thing. You cannot understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the book of Zechariah. All of chapter four is speaking about um, these two witnesses that we find in verse three. Verse one and two, we talked about the measuring of the temple, but now verse three through seven, it says, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. It says they stood before the Lord of the whole earth. Well, where did they stand before the Lord of the whole earth? Well, that would be Matthew chapter 17, and we find Jesus taking Peter, James, and John and going up to a high place, and all of a sudden there appeared with them Moses and Elijah, standing with the Lord. It blew Peter's mind away. He didn't know what to say, but that never stopped Peter from talking before, so why should it stop him now? So he said, let's build three, three sanctuaries here, one for you, Lord, and one for Elijah, and one for Moses, And then God spoke from heaven and basically said, button it up, Peter. (laughs) This is my beloved son. Listen to him. But it brought up this whole conversation about Moses. The very last verse in the book of Malachi is this. I will send you Elijah before that great and terrible day of the Lord. That's how the Old Testament ends. Then God doesn't speak again for 400 years. And who's the first prophet that speaks? John the Baptist. And um, so we read verse that their testimony is going to be for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Who are they? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the whole earth. He points them right back to Zechariah chapter four. And that's what the whole chapter is about. If anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this banner. They shall have power to shut heaven so no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they will have power over water to turn it into blood. Sounds like Moses and Elijah to me. And to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. You know what that's saying? It's another way of saying, and it's much more descriptive in Zechariah, because 
as he sees these two olive trees and these receptacles going into the temple, dripping the golden oil, is saying that there's a continual flow without measure and it goes directly into the temple itself. And, um, you know, it makes me think of the, the, the ten virgins who had their lamps lit and they were, they were ready. And the other ones, their oil ran out and they had to, to go and buy. Oil is a representative of the spirit. And what we have a picture and what um, John is being told here is these two olive trees that Zechariah talked about are going to at will have all the power that they want. And they can do whatever they want, whenever they want to do it. And if anybody tries to stop them, they're dead. And uh, whether or not it's literal, that fire comes out of their mouth and does it, I I think probably yes. Uh, But isn't this where we got really sidetracked on Sunday, this next verse? And when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit makes war against them and overcomes them and kills them. What did they do? They preached the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first three and a half years. But then uh, they are killed. Let's go back to Zechariah and tie this all up. I want to touch again a little bit just on eight and nine. All of chapter four is all about Moses and Elijah, the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. If we go back to 8 and 9, um, remember the whole point that Zechariah is trying to do with the people is to encourage them. And I can't help but make the analogy of what's going on in our world tonight what's happening in the Gulf Coast as we speak. Could have turned into a Cat 5 when I left the house, that's what they were saying. We have the National Guards, where Kenosha is making world, worldwide news, it was on the news tonight. Uh, National Guard, I can't believe Evers, Evers is in trouble, because he said yes to President Trump. <laughs> I think that went through for a little bit. But we have the National Guard in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Our world is in turmoil. And our world is being turned upside down. And what was happening here is their world was turned upside down. I mean, literally. And the way I was thinking about it as I was leaving the house is I'm going tonight, and I know how I'm going to end the study, because what he wants to do here is simply encourage these people who are discouraged. Um, Jerusalem is like a, a... a brand that's been plucked out of the fire. It's in ashes. It's in dust. And now they have to come back to that. And so the word of encouragement here is don't think this is going to drag on forever. And we read here that the Lord is going to use the hand of Zerubbabel to lay the foundation of this temple and he's also going to finish it. In other words, this isn't going to drag out forever. But as I look Around and I thought, well, what there's I I know people, Christians and unbelievers are like are going through it right now, and um, some days can really be a drag. Good place for an amen. Nobody feels like saying amen, but it's a reality. And you need to know this: the Lord started a good work in you. And I'm quoting Philippians one six. God is saying. To, Um, being confident of this very thing that he which has begun a good work in you he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ in other words he's saying church hang in there there's hope even with the world turned upside down right now even though Kenosha Wisconsin is making national news and even though we got a cat 5 or cat 4 hurricane breaking into Texas and Louisiana you know what's going to happen after 3 or 4 days just like these people came back from Babylon to ruins, what's the, I think it's Lake Charles, some city 40 miles in, they said this, this city's gonna be gone tomorrow. It'll be completely gone because of the storm surge, 20-foot storm surge. But 
they have to go back to that. Now they're already dealing with masks, wearing these things, and they're going through all the trials that the rest of America is going through, but now they're going home to nothing. And so I know that you're going through it. Because I, I wake up and I go, is this really happening? I mean, can it get any worse than this? I mean, what, what's going to happen next? It's just one thing after another. But that's not the end of the story, my friends. As Zerubbabel encouraged him, he said, look, this job is going to be done before Zerubbabel dies. And I believe that the Lord, um, before, this is just a precursor to the tribulation. And the Lord has a plan that he has not appointed you and I to wrath. So the encouragement is, yeah, this is tough right now. Nobody likes it. People are discouraged and are having tough days. But the good news is the Lord has gone to prepare a place for you. He's never gonna leave you. He's never gonna forsake you. The work that he started in you, he's gonna finish it. Just as Zerubbabel started this one, he's gonna finish it. No, he's telling the people, this isn't gonna go on forever. This is the same Zerubbabel here, and they finished it in 16 years. 16 years later, the job was done. And um, that temple was there for the next 500 years. I should mention again, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't in it. But let's say we go out a week or two, maybe a month or two, and all of a sudden there's this flash, breaking news from Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant has been found. Here's a picture of it. You think that wouldn't blow minds? You don't think that would cause people to say, we want our temple? Heim Richman has dedicated his, his whole life. And... Um, um, I have fond memories of him um, and, and the work that uh, he's, he's involved with right now. So as a word of encouragement, the Lord's gonna finish what he started in you and we are told to what? Cast our cares upon him. Why? Because you're the apple of his eye. Because he cares for you. Good way to end the study. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. There's so many people that are discouraged, Lord. When we do take our eyes off of you, it doesn't look very bright at all. Uh, We thank you uh, for your promises that you're gonna finish what you started. We thank you uh, as we stand in awe and wonder, Lord, of the complexity of your word and how Zechariah, Uh, so fully identifies and fulfills, has its fulfillment in the book of Revelation. So Lord, I thank you that we made through our chapters tonight. We pray for those that, again, that are facing this terrible storm. We pray for what's going on in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and the people that are being affected by that. Um, But we thank you for the blessed hope and pray before you would go before us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.